Oh, today that you would hear his voice and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A reading from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 15, and then verses 46 to 50. These are God's words. For the choir director of the servant of Yahweh of David, who spoke to Yahweh the words of this song in the day that Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of vileness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh, And cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came to his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling, and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens and came down. With thick darkness under his feet, he rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High gave forth his voice, Hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance, and threw them into confusion. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Now jumping to verse 46. Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be lifted high. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me, who delivers me from my enemies, surely you lifted me up above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Yahweh, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives salvation to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his seed forever. These are God's words. You can take your seats. So this is a difficult psalm to preach for a number of reasons. And because this is the case, I've decided to preach it over two Lord's Days. We will read the psalm in its entirety next time I preach. But this week I wanted to hone into what I believe is the greatest difficulty interpreting the psalm. We find this difficulty in the title of the psalm. Let me read it to you again. For the choir director of the servant of Yahweh, of David, who spoke to Yahweh the words of this song in the day that Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this psalm is about how Yahweh delivered David from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Sounds straightforward on the face of it, right? 
But the difficulty is that we have another account in the Bible of how Yahweh delivered David from his enemies found in First and Second Samuel. And that account looks very different from the one we have here. The contrast between these accounts is made to pop out at us even more because this song in its entirety, by one verse, is recorded right after, uh, right after Samuel's account of the, the narrative at the end of Second Samuel. God, the one who breathed out these words, put these differing accounts side by side. This being the case, the contrast is put right in front of us so that uh, we should think that there's no problem. So it is worth meditating on the differences and working out how we should harmonize them. Let me show you how these accounts differ with one clear and potent example. This psalm describes how Yahweh delivered David from all his enemies, but let's look at the one enemy that he named specifically in the title. How does 1 Samuel say that David was delivered from the hands of Saul? Let me give you a refresher. We know that David was delivered a number of times from the hands of Saul, and we could, we could give many examples. But it could be said that David was only fully freed from the persecution of Saul once Saul died. Because of the constant attempts on, uh, that were made on David's life, David was convinced that he had to flee to the land of the Philistines for safety. He had to find sanctuary living among the enemies of Israel. But God made any future persecution of David impossible by killing Saul, and the death God had appointed for him was a pretty lonely and shameful way to go. We are told how it happened in 1 Samuel 28. While David was living amongst the Philistines, fleeing from Saul, God sent the Philistine armies to camp near Israel. Saul saw these encamped armies, and knowing that a war was imminent, he became afraid. Before he went to battle, he wanted to know how it would go for him, and since the prophet Samuel had died, and God had given him no word to reassure him, he sinfully consulted a medium, a fortune teller. Do you remember the other week how we talked about the great transgression of presumptuous sins? Well, this was a presumptuous sin. Saul would have known the law explicitly prohibited this. All kings had to know the law, and Leviticus 19.31 said this, Do not turn it to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am Yahweh, your God. So this great transgression angered God. Even so, God gave him what he wanted, in a sense, and sent back Samuel from the place of the dead to give him a word. But the word was not good for Saul. Samuel told him that tomorrow he would die in battle with his sons. This, ultimate, this was ultimately the fulfillment of an earlier prophecy Samuel gave while he was alive, in chapter 13, where he told Saul that the kingdom would be taken away from him because he presumptively offered a sacrifice to God, something that a king was not authorized to do. Saul operated in the wrong sphere of authority. We've been talking about that a lot. And that cost him, this sin cost him the kingdom. And of course, everything happened as Samuel had said. The Philistines overtook the armies of Saul. They killed his sons. Then an arrow pierced him through. Then being wounded and having good reason to believe that the Philistines would treat him poorly when they found him, he killed himself by falling on his own sword. That was how God finally delivered David 
from the hand of Saul. But how does the psalm describe this deliverance? David says in verse 6 that he called out to God in his distress and cried, and his cry for help came to his ears. Then, and I'm going to quote again from verse 7. You're looking for that beat, Mark? Oh, okay. Uh, then quoting now from verse 7 and onward, this is what happened when he, he prayed and asked for deliverance. Same account as what we just talked about. The earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountain, mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and fire went out from his mouth and devoured. Coals were kindled by it. And we could carry on and there's a bunch of imagery given to us here. But you will not find any of this in the narrative account of First and Second Samuel. But David said that this is what happened. This is David's account of how he was delivered from his enemies, including Saul. So what are we to make of it? Before we answer this question, I think it would be helpful to consider who David was. David, the man who gave this psalm to Israel to sing. I think considering who he was will help us make sense of this account. Listen to how David describes himself in his last words. David recorded his last words for us in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. And this is right after Psalm 18 is quoted in that same book. He says, quoting now, Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who was raised on high, declares, The anointed, uh, the anointed of the God of Jacob, And the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Here David describes himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. The sweet psalmist. I know that before I prepared for this sermon, I had not fully grasped this aspect of who David was to the people of Israel. He was the one who gave them their sweet songs. The word used here, sweet, in Hebrew means pleasant, delightful, lovely, agreeable. We all know the feeling you get when you hear for the first time a sweet song, one that touches your soul, whether it is by the words or by the music or ideally both. It is like the artist has given you a gift. You feel grateful for experiencing the thing, the thing that they created. They have given you something wonderful, an experience that you could not have experienced another way except through that song. It is human nature to love them for it. And since it is also our human nature to sinfully love things, to create idols, in our day, it has even led people to worship and adore the artists they listen to. Now, I don't think that David was worshipped for his psalms, but I do think that he was loved by Israel. They were given by him sweet songs to sing. At the end of his life, he could be fittingly called the sweet psalmist of Israel. It was part of his identity with the nation. Psalm 18 was one of David's last songs, and we know this because, as the title, and as the title also says, he, he wrote this um, after all his enemies were subdued. It's recorded at the end of 2 Samuel, and the next thing that we read about David in 1 Kings, when he is, is when he is in his old age, struggling to keep warm. So when David gave this sweet song to Israel to sing, Remember, the title also says to the choir master, so it was to be sung as a congregation. 
when he gave it to them, Israel would have understood the events that led up to David's enthronement, and many would have even seen how his enemies were defeated, and most of them would have remembered Saul. They were being asked to sing about something they already knew about, and they were expected by David to understand how he was portraying those events with the psalm. This being the case, we can know that Israel would have received David's differing account naturally. When Psalm 18 came up in the liturgy, it would have been sweet to Israel. They wouldn't have thought, oh no, we have to sing that song again where David got a bit fancy with his poetry. I believe the righteous men and women of Israel would have understood the function and meaning of David's words, and they would have loved the psalm of the sweet psalmist. Also, as we read earlier in David's final words, it was the spirit of Yahweh that's, that, um, it was by the spirit of Yahweh that David spoke. Yahweh's very words were on David's tongue. His words were prophetic, they were revelatory, and being the God-breathed word of Scripture, they were perfect. There should be no scoffing at this account being different from the narrative of Samuel. So now we get back to our question. What are we to make of the language of the psalm? What is going on here? Is it literal? Is it figurative? It is true, but in what sense is it true? Good Christians have answered these questions in various ways, but I think that few today would give a sufficient account of what is going on here. Let me tell you up front what I think David is revealing to us here. Thanks, Lon. Um, So we're going to look at what David's revealing to us here, and for the rest of the sermon, we're going to flesh it out and show what, what I mean. So I believe that David is describing the same events recorded in the narrative of First and Second Samuel, but from the perspective of the unseen heavenly realms, the heavenly activity of God and his angels that ensured David's earthly deliverance. These events that truly happened in heaven had the earthly effect summed up in the title of the psalm. These are not merely a prophetic description of God's activity, It is a true account of God's activity described with fitting but weak symbols. I've used this language before. The symbols that David uses accurately describes the activity of God, but the substance of those symbols is greater than the symbol itself. You could say the substance of the symbols is more true. In other words, this is actually how David was delivered from his enemies. It's actually how he was. In the heavenly realm... Yahweh rode on a cherub in the midst of dark clouds and powerfully, yet invisibly, struck the earth so that all David's enemies would scatter. Now, this will likely bring up many questions, and hopefully I'll be able to address most of them as we seek to prove this and flesh it out further from the text. But before I do, I want to explain why I believe this requires so much explanation. In David's day, it wouldn't have required so much explanation, I believe, the Israelites had a better grasp of the nature of reality. That is, they had a true and biblical cosmology. What I mean by that is, they knew about the nature of the heavenly bodies, the angelic invisible realm, and the effects they had on the earth. Today, Christians have largely lost a biblical cosmology. They understand that there is an unseen heavenly realm, but they do not understand the connection between it and what God has made visible to us. 
Non has been touching on this with his sermons on worship and liturgy. There is a connection between what happens in heaven and what happens on earth and vice versa. These unseen heavenly realities would have pervaded the Jewish way of thinking. They understood the visible and the invisible and the relationship between the earthly and the heavenly activity. This is why I say that they would have taken David's language naturally. The invisible realities were naturally part of their world and life view. They already knew that men do not wrestle merely against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So knowing David's earthly struggles with earthly enemies, it would not have been jarring or weird to sing about them from the heavenly perspective. This was just as real and accurate as the arrow that pierced Saul's chest. So how would we establish a correct cosmology from other places in scripture? Can it be proven from the Bible alone? Well, that's what I'm going to try to do for the next little while, to prove that the unseen heavenly realm is literally affecting the earthly realm. So first, let's consider Job. In that book, it says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So in the unseen heavenly realms, a meeting took place. And what was the result? Satan was given authority by God to touch all that Job had. But what did the touching of Satan look like? It says that he sent the Sabaeans, a foreign people, a rebel, to strike down his children at, his, at the oldest brother's house. The heavenly activity on earth, or the heavenly activity as it was manifest on the earth, looked like evil men barging into a dinner party with swords. The heavenly activity had a natural-looking outcome. The invisible heavenly activity of sending this rabble into, uh, like, so the heavenly invisible activity of sending the rabble, how it looked in heaven, was not described in the book of Job as it was in Psalm 18, but we know it certainly happened. And if it was described in the book of Job, it would likely look and sound very different than the natural account. Now let's consider the book of Daniel in chapter 10. It says that Daniel mourned for three weeks, 21 days of fasting and prayer, hoping to gain an understanding of Cyrus's vision. He went to bed hungry, then he woke again and again to more physical hunger. There was heat, sweat, blue skies, and bathroom breaks, a bunch of natural things. But what else was happening at the same time? This chapter also says that, the invisible he- that in the invisible heavenly realms, a battle was taking place. This is how the angelic messenger described the unseen realm to Daniel. He said, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So when Daniel began to fast and pray unseen heavenly activity began. And in the the next verse, the messenger describes more heavenly activity. In a sense, he opened a window for Daniel through his account so that he could see into the unseen heavenly realms. This is what he said. The prince of the king of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, 
came to me, uh, came to help me, for I was left there with the princes, uh, with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So that's Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. So we see from this example a description of the activity in the heavenly realm and how it had an impact on earthly activity. The heavenly activity in this case delayed Daniel's earthly help. It wasn't until the angel Michael fought with the king of Persia, another angelic being, that the messenger could come with the interpretation of the vision. There are many other examples uh, where we could see that the unseen heavenly realms were opened to men, uh, that they could see with their natural eyes something that they were not normally given access to. Every time an angel appeared to a man or woman, this is what happened. The invisible heavenly beings were, for various reasons, manifesting themselves to the natural world. Consider the shepherds at the beginning of the gospel. God opened up the heavens to them so that they could see myriads of angels worshipping God at the birth of the Messiah. These angels were always existing, but they were not seen with the human eye until the heavens were opened up to men. Stephen was another example of this. God opened the heavens up to him in his last moments. This is what he said uh, as he was being stoned to death. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And other examples could be given. But returning to our psalm, I believe was that David was doing something similar here, opening up the heavens to us by retelling what happened in the heavenly realms during his lifetime. Let's look again at some of the details of this description. God heard his prayer, and then verse 7, the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembled and were shaken because he was angry. So when David's prayer was heard from the temple, in a similar way to how it happened with Daniel, heavenly activity began. We have no record of the physical earth actually shaking in in the books of Samuel or the foundation of the earth trembling. But in the unseen heavenly realms, whatever corresponds to the earth or to the mountains was shaken. David was was not instantly delivered, but the earth, in some sense, began to rumble. Earthquakes are often described as birth pains in Scripture. The contractions or rumblings that are leading up to the thing of greater or, or ultimate significance. This is how God delivers. He sets things into motion with signs that indicate an inevitable deliverance is on its way. He draws out his deliverance for good reason, and those reasons are often not known, are only known to him, not known to us. Now, I said that Psalm 18 and the record of Psalm 18 in 2 Samuel were largely the same, but there are some interesting and I believe illuminating variances between the two. There is one here that I think shows us this correspondence between heavenly and earthly activity. In the psalm, it says, The foundations of the mountains were trembling. But in 2 Samuel, it says, the foundations of the heavens were trembling. The words are very different words in the Hebrew. One says mountains, and the other says heavens. What are we to make of this? 
Well, they must, in some sense, be referring to the same event or the same phenomenon. This is not a contradiction. And since this is the case, the author of these two accounts is giving us insight into the heavenly realms. As the heavens are shaken, the mountains shake. The heavenly mountains. Remember, this is not the earthly mountains, but a heavenly representation of them, one that corresponds to the earthly mountains. The heavens shook, and the mountains shook with it. So I'm interpreting that variance in the, the two accounts. And the text says here that they shook because Yahweh was angry. It says, describing his anger, smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. What are we to make of this? The fact that God is angry is understandable. But what are these symbols representing? The symbol of fire is often used in the Bible to describe God's anger. In Moses' song, found in Deuteronomy 32, it describes God's jealous anger for Israel in this way. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. He then describes the earthly manifestation of this fire. Famines, pestilence, the coming of wild beasts, and foreign armies. In other words, not literal earthly fire. So a fire was kindled by God's anger, but various, various judgments came about. The image of fiery anger in the psalm is akin to a volcano. We can see that in the imagery. Throwing up great dark clouds into the air, blotting out the light, which in turn throws hot coals and lightning down to the earth. Who can look at an earthly volcano and not think, that thing is angry? The symbol is speaking. Its activity is speaking. But an earthly volcano, the symbol that David is using here, is not merely like God's anger. A volcano is a fitting but weak symbol of God's activity in heaven. In some true sense, a fire came from God's mouth like the fire from the mouth of a volcano, resulting in the destruction of David's earthly enemies. Let's continue, and we'll see how this case is strengthened with more examples. Verses 9 and 10. He bowed the heavens and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. So why darkness under his feet? Why riding a cherub? We will see as we go further into this text that David, like many other biblical authors do, describes God's regular mode of transportation when bringing judgment as the clouds. Why is this symbol used all over the place? God is always coming on the clouds to judge. Is it a coincidence that many biblical authors use this same symbolism? Or are they touching on a cosmological truth? His movement could have been described in many other ways. But it wasn't. Because riding on the clouds, in some sense, directly corresponds to God's heavenly activity. David never saw God riding on these dark clouds. Nevertheless, he knew that God had done it when delivering him from his enemies. And David says he was doing this riding on cherubim. Now, this is a totally unnecessary and you could say fanciful detail if it were not the case. 
but we can confirm that God truly did this with one fact. God had taught David and the rest of Israel that this is how God got around through the design of the Ark of the Covenant. And non-interestingly read um, a passage that referred to that this morning. He's enthroned on the cherubim. The, the symbol of riding on a, on a cherub must direct our minds to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was connected to much of David's success over his enemies. When the Ark came with David and his armies into battle, God went with them into battle. And what was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. These symbols, cherubim, crafted and placed on the top of the Ark, were physical representations of heavenly realities. They represented the true presence of the God who rides on cherubim into battle in the heavenly places. Many times in scripture, when it speaks of the Ark of the Covenant, it says that God was enthroned above the cherubim. We hadn't had one of them like I mentioned this morning. So was David using poetic license when he referred to God riding on cherubim? No, this is actually how it happened in the unseen heavenly realm. Why else would he mention it? Why bring cherub into this account if they were not significant to his deliverance? Let's continue and read the next, verse, next verses, beginning at verse 11. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, a darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, past his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire, Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High gave forth his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and threw them into confusion. What a time to be preaching this text, considering the weather that we've been having. The summer has been a little unusual, full of wild weather, and big storm clouds and thunder and lightning. Is it an awesome thing to see dense black clouds coming into an area that has, currently has calm weather? Each time you hear the thunderclaps in the distance, you think, woohoo, this is going to be a doozy. But these earthly storm clouds are fitting but weak symbols of the storms God creates in the heavens. These heavenly storms mentioned in this psalm were bringing with them David's deliverance. David, having a mature understanding of the heavenly realms, could see these clouds with the eyes of faith, though his earthly eyes likely saw nothing but blue skies. But David's earthly enemies did not see the storm clouds coming. They were pursuing him with what they believed were clear skies. But there truly was a storm a-brewing in the heavenlies. It was about to dump judgment on them. He had seen their situation with the eyes of faith. He had believed in the invisible God of the heavenly realms. They, uh, they, they would have been terrified. Like so, sorry, I'm missing the point here. If the if the enemies of David had have seen what David knew, if they if they had seen these dark clouds coming, they would have been terrified at the sight of this inescapable, dark, and powerful weather event coming at them from another realm. At this point, I think it would be good to go off on a little tangent to talk about eschatology. I believe that many today do not have an, a correct eschatology because they do not have a correct cosmology. What do I mean? In an effort to read the Bible literally, 
many assert that prophesied heavenly activity must manifest itself in a literal one-to-one way in earth, on earth. This um, by itself proves their, that their view is untrue. They say that God coming on the clouds must be visible and it must be on literal earthly clouds. But with David's deliverance, it was not. Let me read you one text where those who have an incorrect eschatology assert that the clouds must be taken as literal earthly clouds. And notice the similarity with our psalm today. This is Matthew 24, verses 19 to 31, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's clear from the context that that's what it's talking about. This is another earthly judgment. I believe this particular description that I'm about to read, this section, is talking about the same earthly judgment but from the unseen heavenly realm. Quoting now. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the skies and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, this is the heavens, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is a typical description of cosmic judgment. The powers of the heavens are being shaken. The Son of Man is coming on the clouds like he has done many times before. The first century Jews saw that Jesus had come on the clouds of the sky. He had made himself manifest to them by the earthly effects of his heavenly activity. Jesus was active in the heavens so that he uh, so that sorry Jesus was active in the heavens so that all he said would take place before that generation passed away did Like I said descriptions of this heavenly realm activity is all over scripture uh, Here's one other example of it found in the book of Isaiah describing the historical judgment of Egypt chapter 19 verse 1 an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will mount within them. And we know that this has already taken place. One more thing before we get back to Psalm 18. I want to show you how John came to see the events he recorded in the book of Revelation. This is interesting. Where was he seeing them? What was he being given a view of? These are the first verses of chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Just before he gives his incredible revelation of the near future, what was soon to take place. Quoting from the text now. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking uh, speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what will take place after these things. So he's giving um, John a view of the heavenly places. He was being taken up into the heavenly realms to be shown these things. He tells us straight that he was given a window, or more accurately, a door, to see things that we don't see in the earthly realms. You can see how taking this literally would be a mistake, or earthly would be a mistake. The things he saw would would truly take place as they were presented to him, not on earth, 
but in heaven. I believe the earthly manifestation of this heavenly activity was seen, just as it was with the prophesied events of Matthew 24 and the years leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem. A correct cosmology will lead you to understand reality on these two planes. An incorrect cosmology will lead you to apply prophecies of heavenly events in wild and unintended ways. It is very important for your hermeneutic, your method of interpretation. Let's return to the text we have today and consider the clouds of God's judgment a little more. Verse 11. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky, from the brightness before him, past his thick clouds. These clouds of imminent judgment, God made his hiding place, his canopy around him. They were thick, dense with water and wind. They choked out the light. This is a scary image. It's a dense, powerful storm. We understand something of these storms from seeing it in the natural realm. So next time you see one of these storms coming over the horizon like this, when you see one of these natural storms, remember that what is before you is a weak but fitting image of God's heavenly judgments. Heavenly storms. God is coming to judge the enemies of God with the ominous, fear-provoking, awe-inspiring clouds of darkness in the heavenly realms. Since God is in the unseen heavenly realms, uh, since God in the unseen heavenly realms produces storms like this, if God were to open up the heavens to us today, as he did with Stephen and the shepherds, what would the weather look like? With our natural eyes, the weather looks okay today, but overcast. But if God were to peel back the skies, what do you think God has got brewing up in the heavenly places? We would have to believe the skies are not clear in the heavenly realms. Something is building. COVID and all the tyranny and the economic fallout from COVID, um, these things are not detached or unrelated to the heavenly activity. So how do we apply these things to ourselves? One mistake we could make when thinking about the heavenly realities presented in the psalm is to equate our individual problems or our place in the kingdom of God with David's. We can't compare our earthly battles in a one-to-one way with David's battles. He had a unique and prominent place in the purposes of God, so God worked for him an extraordinary cosmic victory that we cannot expect for ourselves individually. God made a covenant with David and promised that the Messiah would come from his descendants. And he speaks about this in the last verse of the psalm, quoting now. He gives great salvation to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his seed forever. So the direct application of this psalm is to David's life and the preservation of his seed. That means we don't pray to God that he would bring storm clouds over our oppressive boss. That's not how it works. <clears throat> so that's uh, so. How are we to apply it? If that's that's how we're not to apply it, how do we apply it? How do we apply these realities about God and His activity in the heavenly realms to our own prayer lives? Well, we must be like David and not look to the natural world 
for deliverance from wicked kingdoms and wicked oppressors. The extension of God's kingdom and the putting down and subduing of his enemies will only come through heavenly activity. And it's going to come through various ways and various means throughout the globe. An earthly victory over sin and the devil will ultimately be won from the heavenly realms. So what are we called to do? Uh, so what we are called to do is imitate David and cry out to God, and he will hear our voice from his temple. Our voice will reach his ears and he will act. Though we may not see anything happening in the natural realm, it doesn't mean that the heavenly mountains haven't begun to shake. It doesn't mean that snow, smoke isn't coming from his nostrils and that the clouds aren't building up around over the enemies of God in the heavenly realms. We must see and pray with the eyes of faith. He will bring deliverance in time. Remember what our Lord promised to us in Matthew 17.10. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and I will move it, and nothing will be impossible for you. Praise God. So we're going to sing this psalm now. And it's to the tune of, I hear the voice of Jesus say.